You're listening to A Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, July 25th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. Charles Mudede is back, Rich Smith is here, Katie Herzog is here, and we are going to talk first about the new Cohen tape. That's the tape that Trump lawyer Michael Cohen secretly made of our president ordering cash payments, it sounds like, in relation to his alleged affair with a Playboy model. What does this mean? We will get deep into it, including Donald Trump's apparent tape-recorded love for Coke in times of stress. That's Diet Coke. Right-wing trolling, we're going to talk about that after the Trump tape, particularly what happens when a right-wing troll shows up in your city wearing a MAGA hat and someone spits on them. Is that resistance too far? And then a new book, Dead Girls by Alice Bolin. Rich loves it. It's about crime writing. And we have a long conversation about why people love reading about dead girls. But first, the Trump tape recorded by Michael Cohen. This episode of Blabbermouth is brought to you by Away. Away makes first-class luggage at coach prices that allows you to charge your phone on the go. For $20 off a suitcase, go to awaytravel.com slash blabbermouth and use the promo code blabbermouth. That's awaytravel.com slash blabbermouth, promo code blabbermouth. Rich, hello. Get me a Coke, please. Right away, sir. We're talking about my ex-wife on the show. (laughs) Katie, hello. Good morning. We are talking about a tape. The tape came out. Prosciutto, mon pipi tape. Not that tape, Rich. Prosciutto, prosciutto. But keep saying it. I think prosciutto is Russian for please get me the PP tape. I think that someone is just going to mail you some prosciutto. <laughs> or some pee You might get a, an orange cup in the mail. I'll take either. So the tape that just came out is a Michael Cohen tape. This is Trump's shady lawyer who apparently recorded his client while they were having some conversations about maybe buying the rights to the story of a Playboy model who said she had an affair with Trump. McDougal. This is yeah. the first time this has ever happened, according to Donald Trump. A lawyer has never in history taped a client before. Right. So sad. That's right. This morning, Trump uh, issued uh, a tweet. and it's, it. a, it's, like it's a doozy. Uh, what kind of lawyer would tape a client? So sad. Is this a first? Never heard of it before, question mark. Why was the tape so abruptly terminated, in parentheses, cut, while I was presumably saying positive things? I hear there are other clients and many reporters that are taped. Can this be so? Too bad. He's like an alien from another planet. He's trying to understand how humanity works. <laughs> also, why did he hire this lawyer who records his client? And the positive things he was saying after the tape was cut off. Okay, but let's talk about what was on the tape. There's the demand for a Coke. <laughs> That's right. The, the, they start talking about the New York Times serving in papers. and uh, About his, I think, first wife, Ivana. The, the divorce papers, presumably, whatever happened the, during the, the divorce. The New York Times is trying to unseal the divorce records. That's right. And then at the mere mention of Donald Trump's ex-wife, he demands... 
a Coke. You did it well. Do it again. Give me a Coke, please. It's shocking to me that he actually said please. I don't think I've ever heard that word come out of his mouth before. It's uh, It was a high-pressure situation. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's clearly any time that Trump is under the gun, he... Uh, his body demands a coke. <laughs> he body needs a coke to deal with the stress. What's also clear from the tape is that Trump has um, anything Trump has said was also said by like a 1950s mob boss, as depicted in a Francis Ford Coppola film. <laughs> For example, on this tape, there's a moment when he says, "Okay, let me set this up because it, it requires some unpacking." They are talking about buying the rights to the story of Karen McDougal, a former Playboy playmate, I believe, who says she had an affair with Trump. AMI, which is a media company that owns the National Enquirer and is owned by this guy, David Pecker, who's friends with Trump, bought McDougal's story in a catch-and-kill ploy to silence her. They, they bought the rights to her story, but then they never ran it. And then they were going to flip the rights to this story, it sounds like, to Donald Trump. And that's what... Because what if he gets hit by a bus? Right. That's the mob <laughs> boss thing. What if he gets hit by a truck? Yeah, yeah, that's right. What if he gets hit by a truck? And so they want to own the story. Um, that had been caught and killed by AMI. Right. And the question was whether or not they were going to pay with cash or a check. Yes. And Trump's lawyers say, even though Trump on the tape says, do it in cash. <laughs> he says, so we're going to do it in cash? And then, uh, and then uh, Michael Cohen says, no, 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 17,000 times right. in his classic Michael mob Cohen boss. knows that he's recording at that moment. Right. And yeah. now Trump's lawyers are spinning it as, uh, no, Trump definitely didn't want to pay in cash. He said, so, instead of saying, so we're going to pay in cash, don't pay in cash. No, we're going to pay in cash. He's really good at that. His revisionist history, his, it's amazing, the, the time capsule on this man. Also, his instructions yesterday at the VFW convention were just don't believe what you hear or see. Just believe what I say. Okay. Uh, So if this becomes a big deal, because we never know anymore, right? Like there's so much that can happen and it just doesn't change. Well, Eli, there's some question that this is somehow a campaign finance violation. I'm not really clear on how that works out. Well, I wanted before we get to that, I just wanted to say if it becomes a big deal, it could be maybe partly because Trump has already denied that he knew anything about deals like this. And here he is talking about a deal like this. So on tape and not being surprised. So he clearly knew. Right. Whether or not it's a campaign finance violation, the the material problem here is that he lied and he said uh, when he was coming off of Air Force One or whatever that he didn't know McDougal, he didn't know anything about – he denied having the affair several times and he denied anything about payment. Wait, you think Donald Trump lies? He's a liar. What? (laughs) Did we catch him? we, We caught him. We caught him in a lie, but we didn't catch him in a campaign finance violation. We didn't, and we didn't catch him in – well, and this is like one of the – maybe what's interesting about this to me or what's interesting about this lie as opposed to the 15,000 others that he says in front of a camera every day is that this is sort of like back of the – like back room, caught you on a tape, doing dirty deals, talking like a mob boss, like a cartoon mob boss who only likes Coke. <laughs> lie, you know what I mean? It sort of it casts the lie what kind in of a more boss, nefarious. Like, doesn't drink and doesn't smoke and only drinks Coke. The one in the White House. Yeah, a one that gets to the White House, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. So the the campaign finance violation would be if you and and uh, this is very Banana Republic, but this is our fucking reality. If a tabloid buys a story that's going to hurt your election chances and doesn't uh, run it. 
and then you pay that tabloid to make sure, damn sure, the thing is not run, that's an election expenditure. Okay. But that didn't happen. He never paid the cash or check or whatever. But it shows that they were in a state of mind to do something like this with Stormy Daniels. Well, do you think that this would, if this story had actually come out, it would have had any impact on the election? I mean, this seems like, oh, he cheated on his wife with a porn star. That seems like not worse than any of his political positions or anything else that he's done or said. I don't know. I'm trying to travel back in time to a moment when the evangelicals said they cared and the election hadn't happened and they didn't realize that they really would get everything they ever dreamed of from the Supreme Court and more if Trump was elected and they looked the other way on everything. Like before the election, maybe, maybe that would have been a bridge I don't know. too Wasn't far the pussy for some voters. Party out. Now yeah. that I think about this lie being like a backroom kind of slightly nefarious thing, actually that pussy grabber thing was horrible. Yeah, I think the only thing that could actually make the evangelicals give up their man would be if a bunch of women came out and said that they, they, they had aborted his children, which I'm sure has happened. No, Come I forth. Think, I think you would have to rip a Christian baby apart on live television. Yeah, well, he he could do it. South of the Mason-Dixon line. Well, you never know. When Trump is talking about this deal, what they want to buy from the National Enquirer and buy the rights to and then sit on for the rest of their natural lives and everyone's natural lives, um, Cohen talks about, we want to get all the stuff. And some people are saying maybe that's not just McDougal's story. Maybe it's a story like you're talking about. Well, and there's 12 other tapes, right? Or there are 12 mm-hmm. tapes total, total to review. So Never mind like tapes. millions of documents. They got so much stuff out of Cohen's uh, office. I'm and- wondering if this was uh, – so the tape was, as, as Trump says, terminated, parentheses cut. And I'm wondering if, if Cohen actually stopped recording at that moment or if they only released this uh, edited version as a message to Trump. Yeah. I don't know. But um, I've been listening to people wonder that same thing. And what is the message? I think it's like, please pardon me, dude. Like, I'm going to keep doing this until you pardon me. Well, he can't preemptively pardon him. Why not? He preemptively Uh, pardoned Joe Arapio. Wait, he had already been... Arapio. Arapio. Wait, hadn't he already been convicted, though? He had, I guess he had been convicted, but not sentenced. Okay, so I'm sorry. Uh, he He pardoned a guy before he was sentenced. Can you preemptively pardon? Yes. Ford did that. This this happened in Watergate. If I get my history wrong, Dan will come scold me next week. But uh, preemptive pardons, I think, happened in Watergate because they were pardoned for any crimes that may arise out of blah, blah, blah. I wonder if it would be no shock at all if, if Trump pardoned Cohen preemptively or postemptively. But I wonder if he also if he just wants back in the good graces, you know, this was his buddy. This was his man. And he and, and Trump hurt his feelings. And now, uh, you know, he's pissed. I I actually have started to think, and this is just Mueller elevation and worship, but I kind of think there's a really elegant trap here that Mueller has set, which is uh, if Trump preemptively pardons Cohen, the act of pardoning, and they've said this in other contexts, can become proof of intent to obstruct justice because he's pardoning people to keep himself from being held accountable so well okay so best case scenario there's some sort of impeachment but if republicans are still in control of congress it doesn't go anywhere anyway yes which gets us back to (laughs) okay okay. you're gonna lay out your your way that hillary clinton somehow ends up in the white house no i just don't want a week to go by without reminding people that the stakes are fucking huge in the midterms and yeah if the republicans continue to control congress 
none of this really matters because they've shown that they don't care about anything that they said they cared about before 2016. Wait, so they don't actually care about the the federal deficit? No, they don't care about the federal deficit because we're going to blow it up now by giving $12 billion to the farmers who have been hurt by Trump's trade war. I'm actually a farmer now. Yeah. <laughs> ah, that's brilliant. Yeah. All the like broke, hanging on by their fingernails journalists in the country should move to Nebraska, (laughs) open up just one farm, collect one uh, tenth of that twelve billion, and run a newspaper. I can grow tomato plants. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, Trump is giving out welfare to the farmers who are being hurt by his trade war. You can't stop the trade war because Trump likes it too much. But you can just like grab more from the federal deficit and give out twelve billion dollars to pay people off before the election comes around. Do you think farmers are like, how do they feel about this? Are they humiliated? Are they angry? Do they like it? I Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa said, came out pretty strong against the, really? um, this uh, proposal from the Ag Secretary, Sonny Perdue, and said that, you know, the fa- Iowa farmers don't need government handouts. We've got to, you know, uh, we need to do... That, that's all he said. Basically, they need open markets. Uh, yeah, they need right. open, which yes, they want to ex, uh, expand and extend. They'd rather sell their free their trade. Crops. The, the the irony, of course, is that Iowa farmers get tons of fucking subsidies from the government. They're paid uh, uh, an obscene amount of money to grow co- specifically corn uh, in the fields of Iowa. I think they get forty cents on the acre if they grow corn as opposed to other crop because it's in the United States' interest to. Um, produce ethanol and also to which they derive from corn and there's also some sp- trade deal with Canada that I- I'm forgetting uh, on corn now too. So farmers are already, especially these the large growers, obsessed, subsidized to all hell. So pretending for a second like this would be like farmers getting government handouts they would do. be new is uh, revisionist history. Yeah. And uh, just another chapter in the bizarro upside down world that we're in when the going gets tough, give out a government handout. That's what Republicans say liberals do. But that is actually our foreign policy. And then Trump's policy to get Republicans to actually vote for Republicans in the midterms, just dole out $12 billion. Maybe there's a stimulus coming for Shady lawyers in Manhattan who are under federal investigation. <laughs> who represent the taxi million, companies yeah. and who are backed by the Russian mob. And sometimes record their clients without their knowledge. I'm investing in taxi coins. <laughs> <laughs> what are the, the medallions? There's medallions. Medallions. Yeah. medallions. Invest now in medallions. Don't get hit by a truck. Next, we're going to talk about when Republicans are not just total hypocrites. They're actual in real life trolls like walking down the street of your city in a MAGA hat troll what do you do is spitting on them a resistance too far that's next so Eli here you got some baggage oh yeah I got old baggage I got new baggage I got baggage I'm dragging around everywhere but in the new baggage category is something I really really like oh yeah what is it what do you got it's from our new sponsor away 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 which makes affordable high quality suitcases that charge my phone get out of here this is a millennial bag if i ever heard of one yeah i can uh tweet from the jetway <laughs> i never run out of charge <laughs> tweet when from I'm... the tarmac yep <laughs> give me a coke 
by cutting out the middleman, Away is able to offer the perfect luggage made with high quality materials at a much lower price. It comes in over 10 colors and five sizes. The carry-on bags feature two USB ports. So really, I could have two Twitter accounts and two phones and tweet from the tarmac at multiple You know, audiences. I've always said there's not enough stuff that charges my phone that's not just a phone charger. It does this with a high-capacity battery that allows you to charge multiple devices, like I said, on the go. So maybe not two phones, maybe a phone and a tablet, maybe a laptop and a tablet. So you never have to worry about a dead phone or fight for an outlet at the airport, which can get ugly. And enough about that USB port. The luggage itself, it's lightweight, durable, and it gives a smooth ride in any direction with four 360-degree spinner wheels that don't get stuck or break. They all have theft-proof TSA-approved combination locks built in to keep your belongings safe, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, Away will fix or replace it for life. Risk-free, 100-day trial period. If at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund. No questions asked. Plus... Get free shipping anywhere in the lower 48 states. Away has a special offer just for Blabbermouth listeners. For $20 off a suitcase, go to awaytravel.com slash Blabbermouth and use the promo code Blabbermouth at checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash Blabbermouth. Promo code Blabbermouth. Charles Mudede, hello. Hello, how do you do? I'm doing well. Welcome back. Thank you. Kitty Herzog, hello. Hi. This week... Paul Ryan gave the game away. He said, hey, uh, the president is a troll. Really? I did not hear that. Yeah. Did you know that? I, I'm shocked. I am shocked. <laughs> so is this his like parting gift to America? Uh, I don't know what it was. And uh, it was actually not a surprise to anyone who's been paying attention or has eyes. The president is and has been a troll since before he was president. He but, looks I know we're not we're not allowed to body shame, but I do want to say he looks like a troll. Does like like, like the troll. human embodiment of a troll. One of those of troll dolls with the very fake hair. Yeah. And with no pants. So uh, Paul Ryan was talking about Donald Trump threatening to take away security clearances of people who he dislikes, former Obama administration officials, James Comey, people who have been criticizing him. So he says he's going to do something. He actually can't even take away the security clearance of James Comey because Comey doesn't have a security clearance anymore. But don't worry about all that. Uh, he is going to take a security clearance away from some people. And Paul Ryan was asked about this. And rather than try to do his fancy dancing away from things or defending the president. He just came out and said, I think he's just trolling people, which I wish he would have said during the election, maybe right after the election, maybe before, right after he declared his, uh, his candidacy for the, for the primary. Yeah. But, uh, in honor of Paul Ryan, at least being honest about what the president is doing, trolling us, trying to own the libs in a way that makes his supporters thrilled. I wanted to talk about another phenomenon, the real-life trolling of the left, because we experienced this in Seattle this week. Katie Herzog, you wrote about it. Charles Mudeda, you wrote about it. What happened was a guy named Ashton Hess, a 17-year-old from Illinois, showed up in Seattle wearing a MAGA hat, a red Make America Great Again hat. Not a crime, not illegal, but uh, probably going to get you a reaction in 
Seattle. And Katie, what happened next? So he was, this kid was with his family on vacation here and he was um, apparently standing outside our premier Starbucks location and um, a couple passed by and one part of one half of the couple smacked the cap right of his head and another one spit in it and they sort of, they had a verbal altercation essentially like the kid said, give me my hat back. The person said, fuck you. We don't want your racism in this state. Blah, blah, blah. And then so the kid, the 17-year-old MAGA Trump supporter, he naturally took video of this, mm-hmm. posted it online, and it very quickly went viral across conservative sites. And so what they saw was this green-haired, non-binary, very Seattle-looking person in a conflict with like a, basically like a, a good old boy teen. And, uh, you know, they loved it. Because it shows the intolerance of the left in their mind, lefty fascism, anti-free speech uh, tendencies, and the violence, I guess maybe they would say, of the intolerant left. And it's all a part of the owning the libs kind of strategy. You troll, you get the reaction you want, and then you uh, confirm your own biases about the left and you try to kind of publicly shame or humiliate the left based on their reaction. Yeah, it works really well. So your argument was, uh, yeah, I don't love a person in a MAGA hat, but uh, lefties, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. My argument is that this is this is counterproductive if the goal is ultimately to get Donald Trump out of office. And I'm not sure that that's why the, the people who accosted this kid, I'm sure that this probably had something to do with how, you know, them wanting to sort of feel good about themselves and their own actions. But when when you take it sort of big picture this is counterproductive. So I looked at research uh, on nonviolent versus violent um, political movements. And according to this, this researcher, Erica Chenoweth, um, who looked at 300 political movements over the past century, nonviolent political movements are twice as likely to be effective as violent political movements. And you can argue that this wasn't an act of violence, but when we live in this culture at the moment when words are violence i think like knocking a hat off of someone's head and spitting in it is like i think you could probably qualify that as violence or that's what it looks like and so the reason according to this researcher that violence isn't an effective tactic is because people are less likely to join the majority of people are less likely to join in a cause if it seems to them that it's violence charles you also wrote about this and i think you have a different take yeah i do i mean i don't um i do i i'm not i'm not um I mean, when I saw the video, I mean, it was, I, I don't know how violent, I mean, violence, I've seen worse violence in videos involving the police officers arresting black people. And I don't really see black uh, cops getting in that much trouble and losing support. I have to point out that uh, the guy was doing this on purpose, as you know, and, and you know, and Katie's right about that. And he also did it in Austin. It's not the first time. Mm-hmm. But wait, right. so he showed, he's, I mean, when you say did it on purpose, you're saying he wore the hat. He wore the hat and did the same thing in Austin. But I yeah, mean, so. to just like wear the hat, because he didn't do anything but wear the hat. He wasn't like standing on a street corner yelling. He was just wearing the hat. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, this, this So happening. he wore the hat in Austin. He wore the hat in Austin, if right. I'm correct. If I'm correct. But you're yeah. saying just wearing the hat alone is provocation enough. Well, I mean, yeah, because people are really raw. They feel the, I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't know the amount of control some people have, but we've been flooded with images of, you know, babies being thrown into cages. And if here's an example, I mean, even I was so surprised even recently, like Billy Joe came out wearing a, a star of David because he was really shocked that, that, that Trump said that there's certain Nazis that are okay. I mean, we, 
it's that hat is really not easy for a lot of people to respond mm-hmm. in a very civilized way to. You know what I mean? And I, it's hard for me to like. Okay, so we're. I know we're we're always asked to be somewhat better than the enemy, right? And you know, it seems to me that sometimes it's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. what does the hat mean to you? Oh, to me, the, the, the hat means all of those horrible things going on. I mean, I can't stand it. You know, um, it doesn't. And it's interesting because there used to be a political culture in the USA where where someone could you know, wear an American flag or something like that. Or, you know what I mean? You know, and it's interesting. I actually find and this. This will be this will be curious to see how this turns out in the future. I actually think that the Confederate flag irritates me less than the MAGA. Hmm. Because, oh, because you know, in a way, the, the the that flag was was always like that's what it is. Right? Uh-huh. It's about slavery and so forth and so on. So I never had any. It doesn't. It it's more honest. It's just direct. Yeah, this is trying to act as if it's just it's just a part of the the standard mainstream political culture, and it's not. Uh huh. Right. It's on the far right. You know so what I mean? what's, Katie, what's wrong if the MAGA hat does represent this as equivalent or maybe in a way worse than the Confederate flag? What's wrong with spitting on it? It's counterproductive. Like th- to me, the goal, I'm a pragmatist. I'm like, I'm, I don't care about who has sort of the purest message. My point is that it's it's counterproductive. And what the only thing that I care about is Trump being out of office. And this is the sort of thing that riles up his base. It's the sort of thing that makes people think that the left is intolerant. And to me, yes, wearing the hat was a, clearly a provocation on the part of this kid. He filmed it like he knew what he knew what was going to happen. And the and, you know, the people who accosted him absolutely fell into that trap. I don't like I understand I completely understand the impulse to do this. But if the goal is to get Trump out of office, this isn't the way to do it. Do you have any sympathy for that? No, because um, I just don't believe I just don't believe Trump. We there are any other voters out there that um that we can get by being nice to trump <laughs> i just i just don't I it's just, not being nice to trump it's, I mean, it's being nice to it's being uh, it's being a polite human being no no it's just that i don't i don't it's uh, to me it's like okay so we have to sit around all the time taking being bashed mentally non-stop right by all sorts of stuff which most of it is pretty racist it offends not only black i mean it offends the full spectrum of people and 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 most of us would not actually hit or knock a cap, right, or something like that. But it just seems like I don't know what in the world can be done, considering all the things that he has done, which are sort of bad. I mean, not, not even like not even like not even offensive to us, but even offensive to the right, mm-hmm. right? Like stuff that should have actually should have actually canceled him out, right? Mm-hmm. Even you know stuff like you know bowing down to Russia and. In all this sort of stuff, I mean, stuff never like, mind Charlottesville, Charlottesville or what's going whatever, on. Whatever, yeah. Border. Let's just go on to the stuff on the right, right? Attacking the, attacking the, uh, the intelligence community uh-huh. who have never been friends of the left at all at any time, right? The FBI was a known enemy <laughs> of leftist causes, right? Up to you know, up to pretty recently, and then suddenly. These these institutions that usually were left leaning, were right leaning, and had um, were pretty patriotic, right? All of these institutions are being and and the army as well. I mean, it's not they're being attacked, mm-hmm. right, by mm-hmm. the president, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yet these people will not change. And if Obama, sorry to 
go here. We always go here. But you have to. If Obama had said the things about the intelligence community and the military that Trump has said, if he had uh, embraced America's enemies the way that Trump has, the right Fox News, every, no one in that uh, world would care if someone walked down a street and knocked an Obama hat off of an Obama supporter and spit on it. Yeah. And also, here's another thing I suspect. We, we really need young voters to be interested in this election. And I, I'm sorry, they, they want to feel passionate about stuff, right? I know they're coming into the into neighborhoods like this. It was a perfect neighborhood to walk into with a magma hat. There was no question about that, right? In fact, I have to give them credit for knowing where to stand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, because he could have gone to Magnolia or something. <laughs> it stood her out for a long time and nothing happened, right? I mean, the fact that he... <laughs> And he had a he had a, a map. I don't know which map they're using, but he go just looked and, for the rainbow crosswalk. <laughs> yeah. where it was right. <laughs> he found it. But, but are you saying so? If this energizes the left, like who cares? We won't we won't get any more Trump supporters peeled away from him. They are where they are. Yeah. And if seeing this uh, energizes the left at the same time, it reaffirms the right's dim view of the left. That's all right. Well, yeah. The, well, the, the right. It's funny. It's. I mean, the, the left is trying to take, you know, trying to remove guns. It's funny that we're the ones who be considered who be considered be um, the violent ones, you know. I mean, besides, it was. I mean, he spat on his hat and uh, you know and stuff like that. But <laughs> Katie, I can see you disagree. I just. I mean, I think that like middle Americans are like most people. They don't vote on policy; they vote on personality. And so I don't know that it's like great policies that are going to get people to to like come to the side of the left. I think it's going to be them seeing like, oh, well, maybe the left isn't all insane, intolerant. And I don't particularly like Donald Trump. I'm not speaking for me right now. I'm pretending to be a person in middle America who's undecided. But I think that when you see when you see, you know, some when you see ugliness, you don't respond to that by saying, like, I want to join that team. And the video looked ugly, even if you hate Donald Trump, which I fucking hate Donald Trump. It didn't encourage you to vote in the midterms? I, I, I'm going to sit this one out. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> now that, you know, I mean, that hat, you know, let's, know. let's forget about, um, you know, um, health, um, health, health care. Let's forget about yeah Medicare. Let's worry about that hat that was sped up. <laughs> I mean, but if people voted, if people like, actually voted in their own self-interest, Donald Trump would not be president right now. Yeah, that's yeah. Ronald Reagan wouldn't have been president, you know, like right. there's not rational. It is not rational. Katie, thank you. Thank you. Charles, thank you. Okay, thank you. Rich, you should not be overpaying for beautiful clothing. I don't think so either. You should be using Everlane. You know what I like about Everlane is that they tell me where it comes from. It only makes the clothes from premium essentials, yeah. It uses the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. They also want you to know what you're paying for and why. That's why they're radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. they got a supply chain management like I've never seen before. It's beautiful. And ethical. And ethical. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. 
I'm a fan of their pants with a slight stretch that my husband's been wearing. They oh, yeah? Stretch in some good spots. And I've been wearing these Everlane shorts. Their amazing khakis. They make me look and feel great. And uh, they're breezy for these hot Seattle days. Everlane's tireless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now you can check out our promotional collection at everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Rich, it's summer. Summertime. And it turns out what Americans really like in summer is a story about murder. That's right. When they don't want a Coke, they want a dead girl. To read about on a beach. That's right. So this is a peculiar American obsession, but uh, time-tested publishers have made money on things like this for a long time. Uh, And you were just reading a book about all this, about this phenomenon. Yes, there's a book of essays, uh, critical essays by Alice Bolin called Dead Girls. And uh, in about maybe a quarter or a third of the essays, she approaches this... um, or she identifies a genre uh, of uh, TV or books called the dead girl story. Um, Often what happens is uh, it's like in Twin Peaks or True Detectives. The story is initiated by a murdered white girl, and then the detective gets to, like, uncover all of the pieces of her story in order to uh, figure out who the criminal is, who the mastermind is, right? And so in in the... essays she dissects how these this genre works and 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 criticizes it so what does she say because you love this right yeah the the essays are great it's it's a totally uh uh, brilliant book and i and i think that her uh uh criticism of the genre is right on Uh, basically she points out in 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 twin peaks case and in true detectives case for instance that the uh Dead girl is used as a prop by writers to basically relive or live out uh, fantasies that they have of of abusing women. So white male writers, and are we talking typically white male writers? Yeah, are we talking about fiction? We're talking about fiction, TV. This is a trope. This is a multi-genre trope, right? And so it's not only for the writer. It doesn't only give the writer an opportunity to live out their fantasies against women. They uh, it gives the audience a fantasy to live out their uh, violent. desires with women and she says that they you know these writers sensationalize and dramatize this violence against women like and the motivations of serial killers because they have to it's like a really boring story we know why men murder women do uh, we why well she points to often cited uh, statistics uh from uh domestic violence groups saying that three women are murdered by their intimate partner every day um, they often are murdered in these domestic situations after the man loses a job or has some kind of instability, ego bruising instability at the home. She also reviews Jess Walters' uh, reporting for the Spokesman Review when he was um, uh, reporting on a, a, a string of serial, kill, serial killings out there. And his big point, she, she mentions, was that, you know, these serial killers aren't criminal fucking masterminds, right? They prey on women who are on the fringes of society. Almost all of them are addicted to drugs or into prostitution or something. They're very easy to find. Nobody's really looking out for them. And the men are, you know, tend to be not criminal masterminds, but mean, 
slightly dumb men who who just want to exert their control, you know, uh, over women. And, and and the quote that she she pulls from from Jess Walters is um, that they are in a very important way smaller than life and not mm. larger than life, right. like Anthony Hopkins or who you know any of these like you know mastermind serial right. killers. So that's basically to, you know her 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 the theory she advances. I love Jess Walters' work. I love his fiction. And I also have been interested for a long time in the true crime genre in the same uh, way and for the same reason that I think this writer is interested in. I think it's really cliched and I think it kind of uh, preys on some impulses of ours that are not our best impulses, right? But as I've learned more about it over the years, I I wrote uh, a profile of Anne Rule a long time ago. She's a really well-known true crime writer. She's not alive anymore, but she wrote The Stranger Beside Me, which was a story, the bestseller about her interaction with Ted Bundy before Ted Bundy was a serial killer Uh and then about his killings. But I just bring that up to say she's a woman writer. Uh She is one of the most famous true crime writers out there. There are not uh, a few women who have made a lot of money and uh, a good name for themselves writing about murderers who come and prey on women who write the exact same story that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing about Anne Rule, if I remember this right, and it was a long time ago, but I'm pretty sure I remember that major consumers of these stories where a white woman is killed by a stranger, right? And mm-hmm. then there's a hunt for a killer are women. Yeah. Women read these stories. So I, that to me just complicates a little bit the argument that you're making that this is white men wanting to get off on a fantasy through writing about killing women and maybe white men getting off on that fantasy by reading it. It's not just uh, white men or any men. It's There are a lot of women involved both on the production end and the consumption end of these stories. Well, obviously this Bolin is obsessed with these stories herself and in, is in fact, in a way that she acknowledges, profiting off of the dead girl phenomenon by naming her collection of essays Dead Girls, right? But she addresses that and she's like, listen, uh, I, I gotta eat. <laughs> I, it's a very popular genre. And she doesn't, I don't think, the way that she addresses that uh, that obsession was um, kind of through a, her personal story and her, her sort of personal coming of age story that she uses as the emotional uh, glue uh, for the for her critiques in, in the book. She was raised in Moscow, Moscow. I know how that, that place in Idaho, Idaho. Moscow, Idaho. I but think it's, it's not Moscow, right? You have to say it Moscow. Oh, she was raised know. in Moscow, Idaho in a very isolated place, you know, as uh, in a very isolated part of the inland Pacific Northwest, surrounded by um, the stories of serial killers, which seem to be particularly prevalent out there, even if statistically they're not, and surrounded by her father's collection of true crime novels, but more um, uh, like like Stig Larsen type Nordic noir <laughs> was what her dad was obsessed with, and so she's like eating up all of this uh, stuff and trying to get over her, um, uh, trying to like figure out some way to have some control over this darkness that is and and murder and 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 power that er- everywhere yeah. is around her and so i think that, that might she doesn't really come out and say it but that wanting to be close to it wanting to see how whether or not you can actually survive yep the you know the, that that is the murderers that was ann rules theory when i talked to her that's what i took away from what she thought about this that people uh like 
being, I'm sorry to use like an old person word, titillated in that way. There's uh-huh. a thrill of like imagining risk and uh, scary things out there, but also uh, imagining how you could control it or get out of it. There's yeah. a thrill to being on that, imagining yourself being on that line. Yeah. But the, I should say that it's not all, the Dead Girls isn't all about this phenomenon of Dead Girls. There's also really great critiques of Joan Didion in there, which I are well taken and really wonderful, um, uh, interesting takes on Los Angeles as an idea in a city. Joan Didion's writing about the Manson murders, is that? It's Joan Didion's writing about Los Angeles, actually. And, um, and her, her kind of, the way that she glamorizes nihilism in a way that allows um, uh, ethical uh, ambivalence to slip into her writing in a, in a way that's, that sucks if you love Joan Didion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then also Britney Spears, the particular dark, deep loneliness of Britney Spears. Eli, she was telling us, she was trying to tell us the whole time from her first single, Baby, hit me one more time. Quote, my loneliness is killing me. You know she doesn't Unquote. write those songs, right? Max Martin did. <laughs> Max Martin did. A Swedish producer who is also very well versed in the Nordic noir. She connects all of this stuff together uh, in these um, essays. And, and watching her mind kind of uh, make all of these associations and, and, and connections is what's really um, uh, so, so surprising and, and, and fun about the book, as is her um, really advanced uh, and welcome uh, sense of self-deprecating humor. So I was, I've been sitting here through this conversation th- trying to think of an elegant way to say this, and I don't, I don't have one, so I'll just stumble through it. But when you're talking about white guys who write books about women who were murdered who happened to be white, I mean, that's me, right? Yeah. I wrote a book about a murder in Seattle where a woman uh, was killed by a guy who there was a manhunt for. And I really relate to uh, what you're saying about what Jess Walters said about the criminals in these cases or the uh, assailants being actually smaller than life. Yeah. And just to put it out there, I, I hope, I guess it's my hope that that's what my work showed in, in addition to a lot of other things. And I say that just to say it's not all, uh, not all writing about murders and crimes um, sinks people's perceptions to the bottom of of what they're capable of right some tries and maybe some not mine but others that i've like admired maybe it actually does elevate people's perception of crime and true risk and uh all that's involved before and after a crime occurs yes eli is talking about his incredible book called while the city slept pulitzer Uh, winning isn't it well not the book but the uh (laughs) the work that came before it that's right. Based the on the book, Pulitzer winning uh, article in The Stranger. Yeah, and the book called did, the, bravest woman was, w- the Bravest Woman in Seattle, which you should totally read. It's an incredible bit of reporting. The book is a beautiful and incredible, uh, a beautiful book, beautifully written, incredibly conceived book, and also really great um, uh, example of uh, uh, systems reporting, uh, reporting about you know how this killer or this this guy who committed a murder fell through the cracks of um of a system we, we could have stopped him but because we're but we the, the system didn't allow him can i know. give you guys an alternate theory here of why people might like murder stories yeah because they're good stories they're fundamentally fascinating it's a who did it it's a gotcha story no like, but it's the same the problem is it's the same story over and over and over again that's why they have to uh, rely on increasingly salacious if it's things. fiction but people love i'm writing a no, piece right if, now about uh, why about it's why women or not love. fiction right if it's non the reason you know <laughs> if it's nonfiction, it's always the husband did it. And if it's fiction, it's 
the husband did it. Well, I, I mean, the, intimate. The, the, the often the, the explanation for who killed the woman is the is her domestic partner. This is like a kind of common. Um, but you can go bigger than that trope. and just say murder is a boring story because humans have been killing each other since there were humans. Yeah. So why are we still fascinated? Well, by we're it? terrified of death for one thing. So, and it's also this universal thing. And so I just, to me, this idea that like, it's all about these sort of dark motivations that we have doesn't exactly ring true to, to my well, no, personal Well, no, but sleuthing is fun. Yeah, sleuthing is fun. Right, yeah. but, the, but it's, she's not talking, she's not saying that sleuthing isn't fun, trying to figure out like yeah. what the half, you know, blood marking on the wall means that spells out like Roanoke or like what the dog hair in the front seat means, even though it was clear. All of that is, her point is that, you know, all of this obscures completely the the the, the, the real story or, or or the point. You know, she is the, she sounds like a really good psychiatrist. Sounds like she has some like really deep insight into into the underpinnings of people's motivations she's, that they might not be aware of. I just want to go back to Anne Rule, who's my touchstone <laughs> for all of this, and I think knows more or knew more than most people because she wrote book after book and she met all the people who liked her books. And her theory was that people are fascinated by other people who do things that they can't imagine themselves doing. The the kindest, she will say, are the most fascinated by the most cruel because it's hard for them to comprehend. And at the same time, so there's something interesting in that. And at the same time, people are also scared of their own potential for cruelty. And they have an interest in people who actually act on ideas that all of us, if we're honest, have, you know, impulses to be mean or worse, violent. So that's her theory. That's that's the source of the fascination. Yeah. There's this like, I would never do that. Oh, I could do that. Why would someone do that? How did someone do that? Right. And I don't think that she would dispute any of this. I think she would just say it's fucked up in our fiction when we present this as salacious, surprisingly salacious or or particularly mysterious when it's not mysterious why anybody would do this to somebody else and she offers correctives to the genre she's not against dead girl stories she mentions pretty little liars as a, a, a another kind of a subversive uh, dead girl uh, narrative and also a lot of jess walter's work uh, over tumbled graves is a piece of fiction where um, the detective he shows basically that the, the detective who is so obsessed with finding the serial killer is fucked up, you know himself. Is it about Dave Reichert? It, it, it could be about Dave Reichert, the uh, congressman from uh, Auburn who was a, a sh- King County sheriff who was chasing down the Green River serial killer for twenty years, 20 years and actively uh, uh, fucked up the investigation, probably because he was so obsessed with these serial killer narratives. He thought it was somebody else and was trying to question him um, uh, forever and basically denied the DNA evidence that would have taken him to the to the right person. He was kind of um, trapped in a conspiracy of his own making. And so this has real world consequences. Also vote for Democrats in the midterms, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> Quick plug, because I just can't uh, let this pass. I have to say, I agree with you that a lot of the tropes of writing about killers are tired and worn, but also I'm not in favor of simplifying the uh, sources of people's violence or the motivations for killing other people. I think crimes can often be infinitely complex and if we say that we know why they happen before we actually know why they happen that's not not a good idea in my mind Mm -hmm. but now we've talked for quite a long time (laughs) about this book of essays about 
uh, why people love stories about murders, why people like us love debating them. The book is Dead Girls by Alice Boland. Rich, thank you. Thanks, Eli. Katie, thank you. Thank you. And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to Charles Mudede, Rich Smith, Katie Herzog, or me, call the Blabberphone, 206-302-2063, or dive on into our Facebook group. It's the Blabbermouth Podcast Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Ahmed Filet J. Aluo for making the music we use on the show each week, and to Nancy Hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears. 